Good evening. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Ian Solomon, and I am the Dean of the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm really honored to be part of a team from UVA bringing you this program, which is co-sponsored by the Batten School, the UVA School of Law, and the University Police Department. This is the third event we have done in a series about this trial of Derek Chauvin. And if you see me glancing over, it's because I am monitoring CNN right now, because we expect very soon to be learning the verdict in the trial of Derek Chauvin. And as that verdict is announced, I will share my screen so we can all learn the verdict together and we can absorb it together, process it together and take advantage of this unique and raw and real opportunity to be in the room virtually together as we get information about this momentous case. Tonight's program had initially been planned to speak about opportunities for advocacy and healing. And we have several really wonderful guests with us this evening representing different backgrounds. So I'm going to invite my colleague Courtney Hawkins to begin to introduce these panelists who we're really honored to have with us. But I want to just apologize in advance that at some point we might break in to turn to the verdict being read and then return to the discussion. Actually, it looks like yeah. we may be going to that now. Let me, nope, maybe not. So we will just gonna to need to be nimble here. Um, we'll do this live together. Um, thank you for joining us. And let me welcome uh, Courtney Hawkins um, from the University Police Department, a new hire there and someone who promises to help transform and strengthen the department's commitment to racial equity and justice. Courtney. Thank you, Ian. Again, my name is Courtney Hawkins and I have a passion for advocating for human and civil rights. Because of that passion, I'm the first ever diversity, equity, inclusion manager for the University of Virginia's Police Department. Our passion and our profession is motivated by the community's passion for seeing a more mindful and proactive police department on UVA's campus. At UPD, we're responsible for promoting peace and equity, and above all, protecting the lives and dignity of the people we are sworn to protect and serve. With me to moderate this panel is Marissa Jones, the Social Equity Advisor for the Batten School. After graduating from UVA in 2019, Marissa worked as a senior research analyst for the Office of Head Start Monitoring and Evaluation. As a first generation and low income college graduate, Marissa was both personally and professionally lived the experience that amplifies her work in promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education. Marissa will now introduce our panel for tonight. Thank you so much, Courtney, for that wonderful introduction. And I'm really so pleased to be able to introduce our schemed panel. And I will also be doing that in alphabetical order. But I first wanted to- Marissa, I apologize to interrupt. I think I need to turn to the judge now. No, no problem at all. So Let's do this. switch over to the judge. I got a thumbs up if you can hear okay. Oh, 
All right, it's for the jury. All right, please be seated. Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.44 p.m. Signed juror four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third degree murder perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Jury four person, 019. Members of the jury, I'm now going to ask you individually if these are your true and correct verdicts. Please respond yes or no. Juror number two, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number nine, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 19, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 27, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 44, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 52, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 55, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 79, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 85, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 89, is this your, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 91, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 92, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Are these your verdicts, so say you one, so say you all? Yes. yes. Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota for not only jury service, but heavy duty jury service. What I'm going to ask you to do now is to follow the deputy back into your usual room and I will join you in a few minutes to answer questions and to advise you further. So all rise for the jury. Guilty on the three charges against him. Derek Chauvin has been found by the jury on this April 20th, 2021. What a, uh, what a moment to sit through together. Um, 
I want to give us all a chance to process that news for a moment. Um, I'll speak for myself. Um, a little bit surprised. Um, or at least I'm process. I felt my heart beating incredibly fast at the beginning of that. And my heart rate is coming down a little bit now, but still not completely. Um, so, um, but I think that, uh, and you can see, as you saw uh, some of the celebrations, you know, I, I don't know if this is a day for celebration. Um, it's a somber day. It's been a somber day for over a year since the, the murder of George Floyd on May 25th last year. Um, but I do think that for many people across the country and perhaps across the world, there will be a sense of a justice system and a legal system and a, and a criminal process system um, that, uh, that functions perhaps in a way that people didn't expect it to function or haven't seen it function in the past. Um, but I want to pause because I think there are many people who are smarter than me and more thoughtful among this group. So let me invite Marissa to reclaim the microphone and introduce our panelists. And then I think the first thing we'll ask our panelists to do is to share some initial reactions. Um, Marissa, back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Um, so thank you all so much for being here. I'm just going to get right into it, um, introducing our wonderful panelists. So our first panelist is Burke Braunfeld. And Burke is the founder of SIG Global Services, which is a criminal justice and corporate security consulting firm. So Burke actually started his career as a police officer in Alexandria, Virginia, and later served internationally for the US Peace Corps, and more recently oversaw security for the Washington DC Metro system. So Burke was actually one of the producers of the documentary film Charm City, which focused on police and community relations in Baltimore, and premiered at Tribeca in 2019, or 2018. And he regularly writes and speaks on topics related to criminal justice reform. And so next we have Jean Cash. So Jean Cash is a li licensed clinical social worker and actually is the founder and CEO of the Consulting, the Counseling Alliance of Virginia. After receiving his master of social work from the Ohio State University, he decided to increase his knowledge and skills in structural family therapy by relocating to Charlottesville. Jean resides on the Mental Health Wellness Coalition as a steering committee member and is the co-chair of the um, Anti-Racist Racial Awareness Inclusion through Sensitive and Equitable Practice Arise, and is actually also a member of the Central Virginia Clinicians of Color Steering Committee. We also had Tia Gaynor, who unfortunately could not make it here today. Um, she is dealing with... So we're gonna go on to um, Valerie Lemmy. So Valerie is the Director of Exploratory Research at the Kettering Foundation and has more than 35 years of experiences, experience in solving public problems and controversial issues in governmental organizations and local communities. She served as city manager, public utilities commissioner and congressional district director and acting chief of staff. She has also been an adjunct professor at the University of Dayton and Howard University. She is an international speaker on good government, democratic practices, and the co-production of public goods by citizens with governmental institutions and energy regulatory issues, and is a published author. We also had Wyatt Rolla, and I have just learned that they cannot make it to the panel today. So um, I think then we're gonna go ahead and get our kind of raw reactions to what we've just heard. Um, does anyone, want to start and just how are we feeling after that? I know my heart was racing like Ian said, and it is a lot to, to take in. 
This is Valerie. I will get started. I, I, first of all, for me, it's a sense of relief. Uh, the, the whole world has been on edge uh, since the killing of George Floyd and our watching. So it's not just in our own communities, but the world is watching to see uh, just how fair and how just we're going to be. Uh, and I think this is a decision uh, that will have tremendous ramifications and repercussions, uh, and it will hopefully bring people to the table that have serious conversations about the changes that are needed. Uh, I know that police uh, don't wanna find themselves in jail for their behavior. Uh, and I know that citizens don't wanna be killed uh, at the hands of police, particularly in instances when there are minor misdemeanors, if there is anything uh, illegal that is going on. So we need to find uh, the space uh, for the work to be done. And I am hoping that uh, this is the, the, the cause that will do that. Uh, and we can talk more about my experiences in Cincinnati 20 years ago when we had a similar situation uh, that um, unfortunately the, the country uh, wasn't able to learn from. Thank you, Valerie. Jean, do you have any comments? Uh, yes, I do. Thanks, Valerie. And, um, I think my initial reaction was fighting back the tears um, as I watched and as I prayed to hear the verdict of him being guilty. And there's the fear of him not being guilty. And the, and as Valerie said, we have to, I hope it brings people to the table, but then I got to be honest with you, the healthy skepticism of our nation uh, continues to be inside of me. And I know this is a great step uh, for us. I also wanna pay attention to uh, the retaliatory efforts that may ensue. And we're looking at structural and systemic racism and how that will impact us even more. Uh, so that's what I pay attention to. And at some point I forgot to breathe and uh, uh, and I know we have to keep breathing as we go through this um, ongoing onslaught of police brutality. And so I am relieved, yes, and I still know we're not done. Thank you for that. Thanks for that vulnerability. I think, I mean, we're all here together to kind of navigate through these emotions and these feelings. So just this honesty is really um, refreshing and needed. Um, I know Burke, um, do you have any kind of reactions after seeing the verdict together? Yeah, you know, I'm, um, I'm still kind of mentally processing the significance of it and what it could mean in the future, I think, um, this is clearly a major moment from the, a police accountability perspective. Um, and I, it, there's, my hope is that it can be um, kind of a, a, a major milestone moment for us as we consider topics like police training, police accountability, police transparency, topics like that. However, similar to Gene, um, I'm also, aware that we are in a nation of 18,000 different police departments and creating sweeping reform or change within uh, the policing system is very, very challenging in this country, un unlike almost any other country in the world. And so I think 
um, we have to be mindful that while this is a big moment, it's it also, and of course, a, a substantial, serious moment because we're talking about someone's life. But in the context of reform or change, it really only is just a moment. So we can't afford to latch on too much to it because it is such a challenge for us. Making substance, substantive changes in this system really requires keeping your finger on the pulse. Um, and and but I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful. I think this is a big deal. Yep, and yeah. Marissa, if I could just weigh in, I had a couple of thoughts that, that folks haven't mentioned as fully as I would like to. I really appreciate um, Valerie's reference to the history here. And my, my heart is still pounding. You can probably hear it now that I've unmuted myself. Um, so I, just from a legal perspective, I thought that the jury might come back with a manslaughter conviction and acquit him of murder. Um, criminal law is my specialty, as you all know. And so I was watching to see, you know, which of these charges, which of the nuances would it would uh, appeal to the jury. And it's, it's really powerful to see them come back with a conviction across the board, including the murder charges. And I just wanted to say a couple of things about the history here. I know that a lot of folks in the room uh, were persuaded by seeing the videos themselves. These were videos taken by bystanders, videos taken by the officer's body cameras. And it's absolutely true, the video is very powerful. Um, but we had videos in the past. So when Rodney King was beaten, I watched the video and I thought it's just absolutely overwhelmingly clear that these officers will be convicted. And they weren't because videos don't speak for themselves. The culture speaks for the video. And so we went into that trial thinking we'd seen a man being beaten ruthlessly by cops. Uh, but instead what the jury decided was that they saw a man resisting. Um, and because of the way in which the defense lawyers dissected that, that video. So I've been watching the trial and focusing on the defense theories. And here's where I'll wrap up. One of the reasons why I think this could be a powerful moment for change, the criminal verdict itself is important. That's an important statement to George Floyd's family, to his loved ones, to the community, that this was murder. Um, that that's what in fact took place on that street. We have now have no doubt about it. That's really important. But what also was important was that part of the trial focused on the policing. So we actually had storytelling in the courtroom in which the prosecution presented the perspective, I take it, of reformers, that this in no way, shape or form is proper policing. And then the defense story, and again, I'm a lawyer, so I have to say he's, he, Chauvin's entitled to a defense. And they worked hard. They worked hard to try to suggest that what he did was reasonable. And that jury went back hearing both those stories and rejected the, the claim that this was proper policing. So it took place in a courtroom. So part of the reform was on trial there as well. So again, I agree, one case, not gonna change the world. Um, criminal convictions themselves don't change the world. We need you policy folks to help us do that. But uh, I'm, I'm relieved and I'm optimistic.
Thank you, Anne. I just wanted to make sure Brian and Courtney got a word in. Okay, I'll be brief. Um, I'm hopeful, but I'm also realistic. I'm hopeful because finally I thought of uh, some words from Amos, let justice roll down like a mighty river and righteousness like a mighty stream. And I see that kind of happening, uh, but I'm also a realist already, but not yet. And I'd like to kind of echo some of the sentiments that were shared. This is a moment, but how do we take advantage to make this a movement? And that's the winning opportunity that we have. I don't think there are winners on either side, but we do have a winning opportunity. And I'm hoping that uh, we can kind of unpack that a little more as we continue to discuss and reflect upon uh, this verdict. Thank you, Brian. Courtney, do you have anything to add? Um, yes. Um, what I would say is now's the time for officers now to take a stand. We have officers do it in the past, such as Officer Carol Horn in Buffalo, New York, who intervened between a white officer that was beating a suspect, right? And in Florida, we had the same thing with Officer Carol Smith in Fort Lauderdale. We need more officers to pay attention. We need more officers to intervene. In this case today, this verdict, I believe, is the one that's going to push more officers to come out and be that change. We're in the 21st century and we're going to make a change as a, as a police department. And I think this verdict is giving us the ammunition, is giving us the willpower to actually stand up because it is saying that we are responsible for our actions. And because of that, we have to change and we will change and we will do better. So, I, it's been great to hear the, the comments. Um, I think I'm more positive. And not that we're not a positive, we're all still processing. But, but I want to caveat a little bit less. Because this really is, and I think uh, Burke used the, the language of a milestone moment. Right? There are five fundamentally big things that I perceive here. One, police officers can be held accountable. That was, I think, very much in doubt for many of us. And not only can be held accountable, are willing to hold each other accountable, the testifying against each other to hold, which yes, uh, you mentioned um, um, Carol Horn, um, it's been rare, but this was actually very constitutive, very public. That is a very big signal, I think. Second, social justice movements and global protests are real and effective, right? Don't forget how much work it was last year around the world, people standing up to say black lives have to matter. That again, and, and here that was validated. Third, for those people who doubt, and this gets to Brian's point of hope or the, and, and uh, Jean's point of hope, America can change. It can start to value black lives. You know, uh, there are many people I know who feel like America can't change, won't change. It's so ingrained, the systemic racism is so ingrained that we can't change. Actually, I wanna say, yes, we can. Yes, we got to bring people to the table to use Valerie's language, um, you know, and it's, hell, it's, it's, we're, it's smart to have a healthy skepticism, as Gene says, but we can change. And that is, that is the, the story of this country. Fourth, as a father of two black sons, I feel a greater promise of justice and safety and protection is possible for him now, thanks to this verdict and the accountability that will come from it. And finally, finally, um, this is an opportunity for those of us who care about this, 
okay, to, 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 to do the bringing to the table, to make this and turn this into policy, to really bring about the, the real policy changes necessary so that the lessons from this case do spread across the 18,000 police departments or many of them. It's gonna take time, it's gonna take hard work, but I'm actually far more optimistic and positive at this moment, particularly in this conversation. Ian, if I might, I wanna follow up on your, your comments and, and also on Anne's. Uh, Victor Hugo told us that not even a mighty army can stop an idea whose time has come uh, and the idea and the time has come. Uh, the tipping point has been reached uh, the Black Lives Matters movement corruption that has occurred continually, continually saying that we have to change, we must do something, and beginning to offer proposals on what that change could look like. Uh, Tia is not here, but she sent us a note saying what is most important is not just sitting at the table, but we have to sit at the table to talk about the action that is going to happen. What are we going to do has to be part and parcel of any discussion around uh, conversations of change and what it's going to look like. Uh, what, what I learned in my experience in Cincinnati, uh, where we had, uh, if it's okay, if I, if I continue talking in this vein, uh, I don't, oh, thank you. Uh, we had the 15th shooting of an African-American male under questionable circumstances by police resulting in a riot 20 years ago this month. Uh, and the city came together, uh, the police department, the FOP, the community, uh, we were working on also a series of racial profiling lawsuits, uh, brought them all together and agreed in what was called a collaborative agreement at the time, uh, one of the first uh, efforts to not only quantify, but, but organize under the jurisdiction of the court and the uh, Justice Department, a commitment and a legal obligation to make changes within the Cincinnati Police Department. Uh, and the focus really was on the Cincinnati Police Department, and I'd like to say that substantive changes were made uh, in the way they behaved on the street. But I will say what I have learned over time is that it's not enough to just talk about the changes police must make. We have to also talk about the responsibility of the community to be involved in determining what safety looks like. It is not just a police responsibility. It must be a community responsibility. And there are lots of things that they can do from civilian oversight review to review of the budgets. I believe they ought to be part of the training in the academy. Police officers ought to know the values of the community, who they work for, what the community is interested in. Uh, and they ought to be part of discussions around community policing. What are citizens going to do? Uh, what are police officers going to do? And what are the institutions in the community going to do so that it's safety uh, that is the key, not just policing? Thank you, Valerie. I mean, you brought up a good point about like action, right? And taking steps towards action. And I just wanted to kind of pivot and ask Burke uh, specifically about, um, do you have any idea about actionable steps that you think are necessary to start having these conversations, rebuilding this trust in our policing system? within our communities um, during, especially during moments like this? Yeah, sure. So um, that, that's how I really like to think about um, sort of potential changes in the justice system. I like to keep them rooted in pract practical and achievable actions because it gives people something to really work for instead of um, resulting in memes or one-liners. I really like to think through like, what are actual tangible steps that we could take to contribute to the future. And so um, as, as Valerie just mentioned, I thought that was a really a great point. Like any relationship, it, it, it 
has to be a two-sided relationship. Both people have to participate in a relationship for it to be a functional relationship. And I think what that means to me is, I think there's several prongs to this. There's no, there's no one kind of magic solution, right? And no one really knows the solution. It's, an, it's, it's like we're fixing it while the plane is flying as we go, which is cool because we can all be part of it too, right? But um, so I think there's a few key pieces that I would suggest if, for both community members and police officers to raise their hand and at, at least start asking about, right? So number one starts with the question of transparency. So, um, you know, when I was a police officer in, in Virginia years ago, um, that was still during a time when if there was a shooting that involved a police officer, the, the basic answer was no comment. There's no comment. We have nothing to say. We're investigating, we're investigating. In those days, luckily, really have started to change quite a bit. There's a demand from the community side saying, we want to know more about what the police department is doing. And I'm not just talking about shooting. I'm also just talking about how do you as a city or county agency spend your time? Like, what are you doing? And so I think that's good, right? A, a police department that is engaging in positive behavior will not be afraid to share the activities that they're doing. And so even in Charlottesville, I think one good example of this is the chief makes the general orders of the police department available online, which is also not the way it's always been, right? It used to be a little bit of secret sauce what the actual policies of a police department were. So that even that is a great step. Citizens and then the citizen side is we should be consumers of that information. We should understand and seek out what the police department is saying they're going to do because if we don't agree with it, we should raise our hand and ask about it, right? So another element is also even on data like use of force data. Police departments, Alexandria is an example, Alexandria, Virginia posts their use of force data about for say the last year of any use of force activity that police officers have been involved in. That's another good act of transparency because citizens should be able to see what the police department's doing and also understand where a problem does lie or doesn't lie in any given community. Another element is as simple as any relationship, which is seek out increases of positive interaction. So what I mean by that is yes, police officers have interactions all day long with community members. Sometimes they're only negative interactions or they're during like the worst moment in someone's life. And that usually isn't a great time to form a natural organic relationship. And so what, what I believe is there, this has to be done with intention on both sides of this equation, right? The community has to seek out the interaction just as the police department does as well. And that can, we see that in, in all sorts of cities through community forums, um, things as simple as community surveys, um, really being intentional about including the community in discussions around policing during calm, quiet, consent moments that are based on consent. Like we both are coming to an event together because we both wanna be here and we're talking. Uh, another topic which Valerie touched on is training. So we have to reconsider the way we approach training and policing. And some topics, like after we did the film Charm City in Baltimore, we went back into the Baltimore Police Academy and taught a course about empathetic policing. And so topics like empathy, implicit bias, those start to be actionable moments because they're skills that you're giving a police officer before they hit the street in a way that they can better understand the people they are interacting with in the community. And finally, I would say to, again to Valerie's point, gets into the question of how are you getting input from the community? So one of those items is the civilian oversight board. That's, that's like an option, but again, that is not a magic bullet, right? Not all boards are created equal and not all boards 
are necessary for the same reasons in all communities, but it provides an important function for certain communities to build trust, to open up a pathway of communication between community members and police departments. Um, and so I think it's always at least worth considering and assessing in the community, is that an avenue that could be worthy in my community? Mm -hmm. I'll stop there, I don't wanna take up too much time. <laughs> Valerie, you spoke a little bit about your role as city manager. How do you think we can now lead down the path of advocacy and healing within our communities after these traumatic and tragic times? I think there are a couple of things that, that have to be done. Uh, as uh, Burke talked about, some of those are the institutional things that we talked about in the police department. But it really is at some level about healing. Uh, there's a lot of pain. Uh, in communities on both sides, interestingly enough. Uh, and we've got to find a way to bring people together so that there's a comfort level, there's a relationship, there's a reason uh, to talk together about what's going on. Uh, as I said earlier, I can't imagine uh, having a career and, and ending up in jail believing I've done what was uh, appropriate. So, so what are police doing? How are they doing it? And how do we help them see where it's in conflict with community values? And that to me is where, where the training comes in. But there are also some institutional changes, the, the policy uh, wonk that comes out in me uh, that, that I learned as city manager. And one of them was we fired the police officer who shot Timothy Thomas. He was hired back uh, by an arbitration board. We have binding arbitration in our state uh, under the FOP contract. Uh, and that meant that an outsider who didn't live there, who didn't have the sort of concerns and knowledge, the culture, the awareness of the community issues, what we talked about here, how this country and the world uh, is saying that Black Lives Matter. Well, this person came in, selected on a list developed by the state with the FOP's endorsement. Uh, and so you, it's a losing battle for the appointing authority to begin with in the city manager system, it was me. Uh, so I went in losing and you can imagine uh, the anger both that I had and the community had when he was brought back. And what was interesting in that uh, is his African-American partner who lied about what happened. He was fired, lost his pension, lost binding arbitration, but the white officer who pulled the, bu uh, bu uh, the, the bullet, shot the gun, under questionable circumstances where I believed he had not followed procedure, the chief believed he had not followed procedure, he was brought back. Uh, so it tells us that we have a lot of work on racial healing, identity uh, to work on. Uh, and so there's some institutional things that are legislative uh, issues that we have to work on. And, and I think that's where our attention as policymakers, as city managers, and as an example, have to be. Uh, issues around residency requirements, uh, blanket immunity, and, and with our lawyer on the phone, is it civil, is it absolute, is it qualified? You know, we've got to take a look at what that looks like and what it means. Um, contract policing, in some instances like Falcon Heights uh, with Philando Castile, there was a contract policing department. The city had really little uh, ability to sort of change things. Uh, they just had to go out and start again. Uh, and so you know, how are we bringing people in? Mutual aid agreements. You're a university. Do you have a mutual aid agreement where you're providing support to a city problem? Are your officers carrying guns? Uh, is that the role for university police? So these kinds of reviews and values, 911. Uh, that dispatcher has a huge amount of authority over calls and where people go and when. Uh, what if we have, like they have in Eugene, Oregon, uh, a program they call CAHOOTS, 
uh, where when there's a mental health issue, it's not the police that are called first, uh, it is the cahoots, it is the mental health response team that's called first. And so, you know, these are institutional things uh, and Burke, you're absolutely right. Uh, these things take time, but where there's a will and it's being done other places, we know it's possible. Uh, and if the community continues to say, we've got to make this happen, we've got to make this work, if they continue to be partners, we'll see it happen. And so those, those are some suggestions that I think, and, and, and lastly, um, citizens also have to learn how to know what to look at. If, you know, I can look at a police uh, set of stats. I'm not sure what I'm looking at. One of the things we did in Cincinnati that I was really proud of was we created something called a neighborhood partnering center where citizens could go and look at the crime data as an example and, and then understand what it meant, what the implications were. And they weren't knocking on the door of the police department or accessing something through the police department. It was through a neighborhood organization where there was a trusting relationship. The NAACP in this instance uh, was the uh, sort of organizer and manager uh, of the responsibility. Uh, and, and that means that people, when they do come forward, they are prepared, they understand what goes on, they understand what the law means. Uh, and so helping citizens be prepared to be co-creators, co-partners uh, with the changes we see becomes important for us as well. And communities have to create the space, city managers and mayors have to create the space for this work to occur. Mr. Jean, this question is for you. We spoke about the Timothy Thomas, the Tamir Rice, the George Floyds, and it seems like it's strange fruit all over again, especially with social media and the release of body footage cameras. How can we as black and brown people and as a community, how do we handle that? Mm -hmm. Oh, Courtney, that's a lot, okay? How do we handle that? Um, I gotta be honest, I was listening to Valerie and Bert Valley, I'm from Ohio too, and I was there uh, in juvenile justice uh, when Cincinnati was going through that plight, and uh, Toledo, Ohio was doing the same thing. So, um, so Courtney, just to start there, I gotta name that. And um, before I get to that question, guys, I, I gotta be totally honest with you. Um, I've been doing a lot of race work since the Unite the Right terrorist attack in Charlottesville, Virginia. And one thing that I see when I'm on panels and my research and when I'm reading, we go, we go up to the edge, but we really start to understand because our ancestors have been saying it for years. We need to dismantle white supremacy. All of these decisions have been based on the color of race. As I see, race matters. It does. And to think that it doesn't is a falsehood that has been going on for over 400, 500 years. So we must, and when I do therapy, I see it, name it, change it. Our country does not name it enough. And what happened today with um, the police, Derek Chauvin, we named that he cannot murder people and hide behind his whiteness. And so when we talk about, because that's where that fear of trusting um, the system because we know in about two weeks or three weeks, another brother, another black kid, another brown kid is going to get shot and killed. We have Dante Wright. He was just shot and killed. And then all the media and all the litigation, all, we don't know what's going to happen with that one. Yes, she's in jail, but see what happens. So one of the things that I really, really talk about 
is um, black fatigue, black and brown fatigue, how we are tired and tired of the onslaught of police brutality. And in order for us to address our fatigue, sometimes we've got to compartmentalize, sometimes we got to turn off the TV, sometimes we have to just step away, and it's okay to do that. But sometimes we have to sit and honor our rage. We walk every day with rage, not anger, but rage that has not been taken care of and falls on deaf, deaf ears. And so when we talk about, I've been blessed to be a part of an organization, the Buck Squad in Charlottesville, Virginia, who I'm talking, what I'm saying is without safety, there's no movement. And when I'm working in Charlottesville with this group, uh, the first thing is like, I don't trust the police. But Gene, can you help us? Can your organization help us? But when we're in, uh, working, working with them, they have to have some type of safety. And the other part is, um, Courtney, is that what we talk about is decentering whiteness. Have you ever seen yourself sitting in a group and you start whispering around white people and they're not even around? Why are we whispering? Why are we whispering? That is the that is the effect of white supremacy. But we have to stop doing that and we have to start to learn to capture our voices. As black and brown people, we have to use our voice. We have to be able to rechannel our rage and our anger in a healthy way because we have it. And um, when we see that onslaught, like with Michael um, the Ferguson case, I mean, I just want to throw the TV out the window. I just couldn't take it anymore. And then you just continue living. And so having groups, talking with people when you're ready, okay? But to just sit it, have it sit inside of you um, is toxic. It kills us mentally, physically, emotionally. So we have to learn how to be able to find our voice, speak, decent to white people, okay? And uh, have them be our allies. They're our allies. They can be our allies in a healthy way. They're not above, they're right beside. Um, I know I'm talking a lot because I get excited when I talk about this stuff. Um, but I just, I want to say respect. We have to understand that we're under constant pressure as black and brown people, and we need a safe place to do that work. And we need white people to really start doing their work and create space for black people to do what we can only do. And, and if you don't talk about it, if what does Ibram Kende talk about? If you're, um, you're non-racist, okay? And we're looking for people to be anti-racist and really lean into this and help, help white people start addressing their sins uh, and their atrocities over the past 450 years. But black people and brown people, we have to find our voice and we have to assert ourselves and know we're okay. This is not our problem. What happened today, that was Derek's problem. His issues related to race, racism, and believing he was in a system that was going to support it. So I said a lot, Courtney, I don't know how to answer your question totally, but that's what I believe helps healing a community. As being part of Charlottesville since 2017, 
watching the community. And I, I agree with Ian. I sit in groups where two years ago, if I said white supremacy, white people would get really uncomfortable. But now they're saying, can I get the article on white supremacy so I can take it back to my executive director? That's what I want. I want you to stop saying white supremacy doesn't exist. Lean into this with us. Everyone needs to lean into this and stop seeing it as something that doesn't exist. So I think Charlottesville is changing and getting better. But boy, we got a long way to go. We still have a you know, Gene, the definition of democracy uh, is about the power demos, uh, uh, the power of kratos and people demos. The power of the people is what our democracy is all about. And so when we recognize our agency, that's when democracy works as it should. You got it. I agree. I agree. And there's great people out there. And we just all need to lean into it. I feel like um, there are just so many different roles that I feel like people can take um, when responding, when um, dealing with, or when healing, or when advocating. Can any of us talk a little bit more? I know, Brian, um, you talk about a lot the need for courageous followers during times like this. Can you discuss that a little bit more? Yeah, I think there's an opportunity. That's that winning opportunity to have courageous followers, those who are willing to um, orbit and center themselves around a mission, the purpose, and not an individual or a leader. We can kind of reflect upon recent history and distant history, where even those at the highest level, people have kind of centered their, their beliefs and actions, and we see where it kind of led them astray and really impacted people and, and uh, populations. But we have an opportunity now to kind of engage in this courageous fellowship, much like what Courtney shared with Officer Carol Horn and the other officers who, when they saw something, they said something, they did something, and they literally, uh, I think, improved uh, lives, but also improved perceptions of the profession of policing. So we're at that moment to kind of really engage in that effort, uh, but not just within the police departments, but also within communities. And I want to stress this. Um, people have to voice, but even in protesting and voicing, if they see something that could kind of uh, uh, lessen the impact, the effect of that protest, uh, they have to voice. They have to say something and do something. If someone throws something, I'm a big believer in terms of that's not a part of the protest. Uh, so how do we make sure that we have courageous followers within our institutions of government, but also within our communities? I think too, to Jean's point, like there's there's some outrage, there's some rage um, underlying all of these, all of this. And to recognize and validate those feelings and emotions while also you know, we all have our own personal beliefs about these situations, about these protests, and just acknowledging that um, there are different ways that people are handling their emotions and their feelings, and that it's that it's the product of hundreds of years of of racism and white supremacy, as as Jean says to name, which I think is also important. Um, but I just wanted to ask a question to the larger group about like, what does it really take to kind of bridge? advocacy and healing because in a way that they're they're very different in a way but they're also both necessary to come together so can anyone speak on that on building that bridge I'll, I'll start again I belong to an organization called initiatives of change and we are the U.S. Uh, organization is based out of Richmond Virginia uh, and we talk about how do you build trust 
you know, how do you how do you get past and, and sort of recognize the history, uh, and then how do you build relationships to to move forward, uh, and and so it's. Uh, it, it is a, a, a responsibility of everybody in the community, but different parts of that community can do different things well. Um, your community in Charlottesville, my community in Dayton, the community in Richmond, where are the places, uh, the churches, the synagogues, the mosques, where are the places uh, that really know how to deal with healing of the soul uh, and the telling of the story and the sort of recognition of the pain that people are going through? Uh, around this and all sorts of issues. Uh, the first African-American child was born in Virginia in 1619. Uh, so, so we have been talking about these issues as you've all mentioned for hundreds of years. Uh, how do we reconcile that pain? So it's a reconciliation process and uh, many places have human rights commissions or they should for that work to be done. Uh, then there's the policy piece. You know, what, what are the policy changes that have to take place? And that's where your appointed and elected officials have to be held accountable. Uh, and again, the agency of as we stood up and said, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, as we stood up and said that this is inappropriate, camera phones revolutionized the police community relationship because that gave evidence about what was going on uh, and something to, to, to look at and to see and to make judgment about. Uh, and today we saw how a, a jury uh, looked at that and, and the, the verdict they gave. Uh, and so uh, as Brian said, stand up. If, if you see something wrong, Take a picture, make sure you talk about it. Don't let it go. Don't say, oh, you know, this is another example of, do something about it. It's, it's, it's the, 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 the voicing and the acting that matter. Uh, it's holding ourselves and the community accountable. Uh, make sure when you vote for someone that you know where they stand on the issues, uh, that they're willing to be an advocate for those things that are important to you. And if not, don't vote for them, you know, and stand for office yourself. Another volunteer group I belong with is about standing progressive people for public office and helping them raise money. Uh, and so that means, again, um, we, we have to help people that are willing to act. So you need the disruptors, you need the people who are going to be the policy makers and work through the issues, and you need the push from the community to continue to demand transparency, engagement, involvement, and accountability. So Valerie, to your point, I think you, you're making a a great point, you make several. And so something that I wanna say right now is that one of the things that I hope that this verdict did was break down a barrier and to really bring in for police departments now to attain a trust or rebuild a trust, right? And this role that I have, I think it's very significant and very important. I am the first person, I am a black woman from Birmingham, Alabama, right? I have a passion for advocating for civil and human rights, right? I worked for the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. So I've met children that marched during the Children's Crusade. And so those children who are now adults and told their stories and I helped amplify their stories and we told their stories doing tours and everything is very important. And so what I hope that we see today is that the barriers now between the police department and the community is no longer there because I think what we see now is that there's accountability, right? It gives officers the responsibility to really uphold their sworn oath to protect and serve. And it gives the community, especially within the black and brown community, the chance to say, we're gonna hold you accountable. Right? And I hope with this role that I have, I can be the material that helps shape that role. 
right, to really advocate for the human and civil rights that we are now seeing that is being heard. Like you said, it's been since 1619. And now we are here in 2021. So I hope, like you said, and we spoke to advocacy. So I'm hoping that this role here at UPD as a diversity officer really shows that before this verdict came in, we are doing what we can to be proactive. This is an intentional role. And I'm hoping to see that part of that advocacy and healing is that we can now, if not tear down the barrier completely, but at least we put some cracks and dents to where now people are wanting to come to our police department and talk to us and wanting to, again, having us to attain that trust and rebuild that trust. I suspect that in the police environment uh, today, a lot of police departments, there's a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. And so change means that we have to work through that with them as well uh, in order to build that relationship of trust and to move forward. Uh, it, it also means that as, as we as, as a community have had to take a look at ourselves, they've got to take a look at themselves and, and your role is critically important because the culture, uh, as a city manager, if we spend all of the resources to train people to be sensitive to and responsible to the community and the field training officer says, ignore everything they taught you, I'm going to tell you how you behave on the street, you, you know, you're starting all over again. Uh, you know, if the fraternal order police in those in those states where they have uh, organized labor unions and in Virginia, the associations, you know, if they're not at the table, you're not going to see much of a culture change. They have to be part of these conversations uh, as well. Uh, and their risk and responsibilities that everybody has to be clear about what they mean. You don't follow procedure. You are using excessive force. You are going to be fired. Uh, there's no second chance you're going to be fired. That has to be clear. Uh, and in and, and Cincinnati, when the first rioting started, uh, the police, uh, everybody called in sick. Uh, and shortly before that, they, uh, in their anger for believing that they weren't getting the support they needed, uh, they took all the cruisers and parked them around City Hall uh, with the motors running, and then they walked away. Uh, so you have to be prepared to how are you going to respond when that kind of action is the way your police department responds. And that's where your leadership comes in. Uh, that's where your political leadership, your leadership within the police department and your community leadership come in. Because that's not acceptable, that's not appropriate and that's not what they signed up for and there needs to be accountability for that. So if I, if I could just follow up on Jean's point quickly, I, I feel compelled to, to add some comments that I think Wyatt Rolla would have added. Um, they weren't able to be with us and they're one of our prized graduates of the UVA Law School um, working as a lawyer for Legal Aid Justice Center out of Richmond and working as a community lawyer. And just to follow up um, with what Jean said, you know, I, I, the, the question of what policymakers and what lawyers can be doing in this space, one of the most important lessons that has come out of the Black Lives Matter movement it was a lesson we should have heard a long time ago, was that lawyers need to stop talking so much, here I am talking, and listening to the community. They need to, they need to say to the community, what is it that you need? What stories do you want to tell? Let me hear your voices about the things that need to change and let me be um, an assistant so that we're following you. We're not up here, the lawyers. We're, we're here with you, or maybe we're even here. 
you know, we're below the community in terms of trying to carry out their, their, their wishes. And that's something, again, to, just to be thinking about the institutional spaces that need to change, that's going to be difficult for lawyers to give up that kind of authority because we like to tell people exactly what it is that they should be doing, which legal tools will work and which won't. And, and that's just wrongheaded. We need to start on the other side. Um, that's the only way, and Valerie and Jean, you both talked about the, the stories and the voices. The problem is that right now we have an edifice of law that's founded on white supremacist stories that doesn't see the value of the experiences and perspectives of black and brown folks. Um, I could tell you a lot more, I will stop. But that's what we need to do. We need to start you know, finding ways to listen and to bring those stories forward, not just looking for racism and white supremacy in obvious courses like the ones I teach, criminal law, criminal procedure. Clearly racism, white supremacy is, is, is a, major social issue in those areas and something we need to extirpate, but all of law, right? You know, think of classes that we think are just sort of neutral, clearly also have a ton of work to do on this front. So I just wanted to endorse what Jean said and to say that it's the establishment folk that need to, to work on this stuff and realize, Courtney mentioned police officers are servants of the community. That's what lawyers need to be doing too. They need to be servants of the community, not trying to force them to follow a certain a certain path. And Anne, that's true of all professions. Uh, all experts, all elites are taught that they are the ones with the answers. I certainly, as a city manager, was trained to find the answer. Every problem has a solution that I have to come up with. Uh, and as a woman, you feel especially responsible uh, to come up with the, the, the solution to the problem. Uh, because that will be how you are evaluated and judged as a manager. And so giving up power uh, has, has never been easy. Uh, and that's where the disruption comes in. That's where the visibility of uh, the, the problem, the transparency of the issue, the camera photos, if you will, uh, that's where they come in and that's why the, they are so important. Uh, and, and at the foundation, what we do is we try to talk through how community can, can co-create, can, can co-produce with institutions issues, but it's got to be driven by citizens, got to be driven by the power of the community if you're going to have systemic substantive change. Can I say something? I just want to add, thank you, appreciate that, Anne. And, um, Larissa said something earlier. I just want to, what, what can we do? And I think when Brian talks about the courageous followers, one of, the, one of the things around those people is one, they choose to be vulnerable in a very scary situation. They choose to take a risk to step out of their normal pattern of day-to-day -day functioning and operating and really challenging, they may lose something. And when I sit in workshops and I hear white people who get vulnerable and be honest, they say, well, you know, I don't wanna lose my power. I don't wanna share my pie with you. I don't wanna do it. So, but to be vulnerable, to risk, and um, do it in relationship with other people. So when that officer stopped that other officer, he's doing that in relationship and prayerfully somebody else supporting him. But we can't do this individually. Like you're saying, if, uh, Valerie, people as a democracy, we have to stand up, but we have to risk. We have to take the risk, we have to be vulnerable and um, 
yeah, it's we can do this. We, we, we can do this, but we have to risk to be courageous followers and be bold. My, in my early career, I worked for Marion Barry, who was one of the uh, founders of SNCC. Uh, and, and, and most of the people that were part of that organization came through the District of Columbia government uh, in some form or fashion. And so as a very young public administrator, I had exposure to them. Uh, and I was one of the first African-Americans that was hired by an African-American mayor because others wouldn't uh, hire us uh, to, to make a difference. And, and you know, out of college, I was interested and wanted to be there because we wanted to change the order of things. We wanted to change how the pie was divvied up, we wanted to change the power relationships. Uh, and I learned so much from that experience about how difficult institutional substantive change is to make uh, against power systems and structures that, that really have all the cards and you have few. But the one card we do have is the ability to voice our concerns and the courage of people who are willing to do that uh, and, and what I learned from the civil rights movement is that there was always somebody else there in line. You know, one person might be arrested and then somebody else was there to take their place. Uh, it was really a community response. Uh, and we know a lot of those thousands of people who go nameless, uh, the sacrifices they made so that people like me could get to go to college in the first place uh, and, and get a quality education. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I hope that we find the inspiration in our heart uh, that helps us when we make that head decision about the willingness to sacrifice and that we know that that army is beside us uh, and they're with us and that there are people within the institution who recognize their responsibility uh, to ensure, like in the civil rights movement, when you are arrested, that there are resources to help you and your family. Uh, if you are injured, that you get the medical attention that you need. And so it, it really is, um, you know, race matters, people matter communities matter, and it means we have to do this together. There's nobody else, folks. We, we've got to do it. Who's going to do it if we don't? So th thank you so much for that, Bella. I'm going to take advantage of my prerogative as dean and say this conversation is very rich, and I want to, if, if our panelists are willing, invite you to stay till just 6.30 so we can continue this conversation. I know that some of our guests might need to peel off because we'd only advertise this till 6, but with, with this group together and given the, the historic nature of the day and the fact that we still have questions in the Q&A from the audience we haven't gotten to, I'm gonna just ask that of those who are willing and wish to stay till 6.30, we'll, we, will, we will do that. Um, so I will back up now and hand it back to Marissa and, and Courtney, but uh, for those who do need to, to sign off, I wanna thank you for being part of this and for joining with us to watch history unfold live and be part of the initial reactions and also starting to catalog the work that needs to be done. Back to you, Marissa. Thank you, Ian. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and ask the first question from Richard Elman. So, what is the status of cases against the other police officers, and how do we think? Um, how will we feel, I guess, if they're acquitted on some or all of the charges against them? And I'm thinking maybe Anne would be the best person to direct this question to. Anne Salon. Um, yeah. So there's no doubt that they and their lawyers have also been watching this trial and this verdict with with great interest and. Um, the theory of the prosecution against them is that they aided and abet abetted Derek Chauvin in the crimes that he committed. Now, if they are convicted, they will be liable for the same crime. Um, so the idea is that they provided him some assistance and they did that for the purpose of, of assisting his crimes. And I had thought going into the cases that it might be a little bit difficult to show that they were aiding and abetting. You know, my first impressions were focused on Chauvin and his conduct 
in kneeling and restraining George Floyd the way he did for, for almost 10 minutes. And I found myself uh, wondering what the theory would be to show that these other folks helped. And now it looks as though it's, there is evidence to, to, to prove that two of them also participated in restraining him. So they were actually putting pressure on his body throughout the time. Um, so it's a very big deal that, that um, Derek Chauvin's been committed, but their situation is gonna be different, right? They're gonna be viewed as people who, again, they're not bystanders, they're actively involved in the encounter. But the question is, did they commit conduct for the purpose of assisting his murders and so forth. And, you know, again, from where I sit, I think that there is ample, ample evidence to support this prosecution. Um, what a jury will, would do isn't necessarily clear because they're gonna have to look at each officer individually and what he was doing in that space. Um, but I would think, I mean, again, I'm just speaking off the cuff now, but if I were their lawyers, I would be wondering whether I should think about trying to make a deal. Another question I was asked is, is it normal procedure for the jurors to, to remain anonymous and to have the judge read out the verdict? So, so no, anonymous juries are not the rule. They're the exception. And I'm, I'm gonna pause. I think Gene is saying that he has to get off. Is that right? 6.15. Oh, 6.15. Okay. I, I didn't want to let you go without thanking you for being here and for all the work you've done to help us. Um, thank God for you coming to Charlottesville when you did. Um, so no, anonymous juries are the exception. They're not the rule. Um, the, the, this, is a, this is a public event. The jurors are members of the community. They represent members of the community. Their names are supposed to be on the public record. Um, and so forth. So anonymous jurors are a fairly recent development. Um, uh, at, at least it certainly happened during my lifetime where they suddenly became a thing, as we like to say. And they're used in cases where there's concern about re that revealing their identity would subject them to danger. So think about cases where the defendants are really dangerous or to various kinds of pressure or meddling from the press or the, from the community. Um, so, you know, a case that's highly controversial and we want to free them from any outside pressures. But so, so, so no, it's not surprising that these jurors were, were anonymous, but it's, it's the exception, not the rule. And we'll have to wait and see if any of them agree to be interviewed. It would be completely fascinating to see what they had to say about their thinking. Um, it seems to me they reached a verdict fairly swiftly on three charges that look kind of complicated to experts. Um, so be interesting to hear what they have to say. Thank you, Anne. And I also just want to quickly go over to the question in the Q&A. And this one, I think Jean might be able to answer before logging off. So um, the Botanical Garden of Piedmont, which is de developed near Charlottesville High School, claims to be creating a space to bring healing and, and Charlottesville together. Is this a vision, vision and mission resonating across racial groups in Charlottesville with adv advocacy groups and the black community? And I think, so I had to do some research really quickly and I think it's a, um, a green space. So can you talk a little bit more about the importance of kind of our environment 
and coming together in, in, um, in greenery and learning about sustainability when it comes to healing? Oh, I think it's very, I think one, that's a lot of self-care. And I think those are great avenues for people to lean into that while they're healing through all of the trauma. Um, I believe that also, it also creates opportunity to be in relationship with other people. And I think if you add in the piece around talking around race, um, wherever you're at, um, it can bring insight to other people who may not ever talk about race. Um, I know like I'm going to a multiracial uh, racial awareness group at 615 that's free to the community. Um, so inviting um, people from those spaces would show up there as well, but also I'm not sure how, to be honest with you, the Botanical Garden, but I know the Charlottesville Mental Health Wellness Coalition uh, would definitely be a great partner um, with them to be able to help create space for healing. Um, it's a great um, initiative that Charlottesville is supporting right now. So yeah, partnership and doing it in relationship with others is essential. Is he, uh, Dr. Cornell West, Waste Matters, he yes. says, we can't do this. We can't do this by ourselves. And sometimes we want to leave white people out and sometimes we want to leave, you know, we want to just do our own thing as black people. But I truly believe we have to do it in relationship. But I also believe in affinity spaces for black and brown people to have a safe place to do the work. So, but yes, I hope I answered your question. Thank you, Jean. Like, Ann, were you going to say something? Oh, no, sorry. So we don't have any additional questions. I don't know if, Ian, you got something? I had a comment I wanted to make. Um, and, you know, Valerie, you suggested earlier that there are police departments and and people in police departments who are really angry after this verdict, and that's no doubt true. But there are probably also many who are also quite relieved and quite pleased and satisfied also, who did not identify with what Derek Chauvin did and would very much like to say, no, that is, that is not acceptable. And there probably are advocates within the police of police reform who now feel empowered to be, to be reformers. Um, I would like to think so. I, I know at times the... Uh, the cultural pressure to go along to get along uh, is is huge, uh, and uh, just like police know the officer not to ride with, they they, they know the the bad eggs, uh, but they don't ever say who they are publicly. They just don't want to be assigned to them. They you know, uh, and and so hopefully we are providing the space for those who are reformers who do recognize the need for change uh, to be free to do that uh, without repercussion. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly hope so. And I think, you know, uh, you know, that's where I think roles like Courtney's roles, people within police departments who Absolutely. are civilians, not officers, but can be there to try to create the space for those who do want to, from the inside, you know, change some of the blue wall of silence and actually know the blue wall of truth. Let, let, let's actually reorient it so that it can be more fair. I don't know if, if Burke's experience may point to that at all as a former police officer, but I suspect, you know, they're, 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 this is an opportunity to engage to engage police departments that, that, that are ashamed and embarrassed by what David Derek Chauvin did. And, and, and hopefully uh, you will be able to, Courtney, tell us how you can do that work. Uh, and, 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 and part of that series is in your role, how will you help police officers feel empowered 
uh, to be able to talk about the issue, to know that they can come to you if, if necessary uh, and say, look, this is going on and, and I'm afraid to say something publicly, but can you help? Uh, that, that there's a place for them to go uh, you know, just as police want communities to be able to say, hey, some bad things are happening over here, uh, please pay attention. Uh, they ought to have a place where they can say, you know, these are bad things happening in the department. Uh, somebody please pay attention. They ought to have an avenue as well uh, for that to occur. Remember the officer in Buffalo uh, who stopped uh, a police officer, her, her partner, uh, from abusing uh, a suspect was fired. Uh, and it took years for the courts to uh, reinstitute her uh, her, her pension, uh, and, and I don't even know if she decided to go back to the department. Uh, so right now, there's not been much of a benefit for those who've been willing to stand up. Often they're reassigned uh, to, to desk duty uh, and they're ignored by the culture. They're not invited uh, to the event at the FOP hall, the lodge hall. Uh, and, and so we've got to create spaces for them to be safe as well, uh, to, to articulate when there is a problem in the department that needs to be addressed. Valerie, I would definitely, definitely agree with what you're saying. Um, when we look to the officers such as Carol Horn and Officer Crystal Smith, right? Those are officers that stood out that did not decide to keep that blue wall. Because let's be honest, truth is not blue. Truth does not have a color, right? It's very transparent. So we have to remove that color, that blue, and saying that's the truth. Because that's not the truth, right? And so one of the things that you have to do is, again, Roles like what I have is very valuable. It's not only valuable to the community, but it's valuable within the police department. When Chief Longo came up with this idea for this role, it was intentional. This was not something that came out of a reaction. This was something that wanted to be proactive, right? When I look at this command staff, I see a bunch of officers that started at different ways. Deputy Chief Fielding started off as a security guard, started off in the military and transitioned to being the first deputy chief officer. That's a woman, right? So then we have Captain Easton, Captain Hall, Lieutenant Gall, Sergeant Ben Rex. We have so many of these officers, right? And one of the things that I can say is this officer, these officers, this command staff, it's so diverse, right? It's so diverse. We wear, we wear so many hats. But the support that this command staff gives to their officers to be able to have those conversations is something that is pivotal. The, the open door policies cannot truly be open door policies if there's a barrier. And if there was a barrier there, then that's where my role comes in to help that transaction happen, to smooth that along, you know, and that's what it takes. It takes roles that are very proactive, right? This isn't a reacting thing. Sometimes we have to stop reacting and think about what's happening in the future, right? We have to partner with other police departments, right? We can't be isolated. Um, this is very interesting in a sense, but we all have heard about the story of Bunny and Clyde, right? We've all heard about that story. But what nobody really talks about is the reason why Bunny and Clyde was so successful was because these police departments did not talk to each other. So when these issues or when this code of silence or when this blue wall happens, it doesn't just happen at one department. It happens at all. Like you said, one officer was able to go to another police department without any repercussions. There has to be something that's done. And the roles that we have are vital 
And I hope to see more people start hiring for this role and really be intentional in their selection in this process. Um, but we do have a question that just popped up. Um, and so I think this is gonna be for Brian or Ian. For panelists who work, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry, it vanished. <laughs> okay, so for panelists who work at the Batten School, how will you continue forward after this day with this verdict? How does this year's, this past year's experience change what you value in a space educating future policymakers? So I think this could also be opened up to Anne at the law school, myself, just anyone who's ready. Yeah, I'll be brief. I think engagement really matters. How do we appreciate different lived experiences? that might challenge our own. When we think about being leaders or courageous followers or policymakers, we have to really appreciate the public in all of its diversity uh, and how uh, we have to acknowledge the past though. We have to call what, what's been called out supremacy, racism, and how that's played out within our institutions and systems. But uh, appreciate how that past has impacted the present, but take advantage of the opportunity for us to kind of think about ways in a co-creative kind of way to improve our future. And so I think engagement really, really matters. And it challenges how we deliver what we do, the deliverables, who we speak with and who we speak across, who we get information from. But it's a tremendous opportunity for us to kind of evolve, to change, to help facilitate this whole goal of creating a more perfect union. Brian, I, I know you're doing some work in your classes. Uh, with, with, with how students can think differently about their responsibility as a public administrator to engage with the public. Uh, please share some of that work as well. Thank you, Valerie, because I was going to have to jump in and talk about Brian's work. <laughs> yeah, we really try to kind of get people to appreciate the opportunities to work with the people. And that's a, a, a book that's coming out uh, from uh, Dr. Matthews at the Kettering Foundation that really challenges us to kind of think about what are some of the obstacles, but also opportunities that exist. It shouldn't be a government by the people, for the people, of the people, but also with the people. And historically, our government has been really kind of limited in its approaches, uh, excluding a huge segment of our population. But the opportunity that lies now is working with. But that will be a work in progress. Uh, change is difficult, that we can all appreciate that. But we have to kind of lean into it, embrace it, uh, to kind of look around. And uh, Kettering is a great kind of foundation that provides some guidance and support for us to kind of begin that process and hopefully refine that process to kind of really do some, some creative things. But we have other colleagues within Baden who are doing some extremely creative work but also across grounds and at other institutions. So I'm happy uh, if Anne would like to kind of share some comments or others to share some comments about that particular question. I'll just dive in, in briefly and then I'll see if Anne wants to add anything. I think, so, you know, what, sh what should we be doing at Baton? It's a great question. I think it's one that I think about a lot because there's a big opportunity for us here. So one is around policy, right? You know, how do, how do our ideas about how we want to keep ourselves in, put themselves into and get manifested in the policies of the constraints on use of force, rules about training, rules about funding, rules about you know, accountability, civilian review boards, the whole range of things that get expressed through policy. So how are we thinking about that? And, and Brian has done a lot even in terms of getting students working with the police departments right along to see what it's like when police officers are out, out in the field. 
um, discussions with the chief of police on use of force rules so that we can see how does policy get implemented in the training that people then go execute on the, on the streets. So the first is around policy. The second is around leadership, right? How do we cultivate leadership for racial equity? and the way people think about how they're gonna mobilize change in the thoughts and behaviors of others, right? And, and I think as a school of, of leadership and public policy, it's thinking what sort of experience do we create for our students and for our faculty? So they are thinking about how are we going to deal with a big issue that uh, Gene left, but, but this is some fundamental to come off the edge. How do we get over the edge of dealing with white supremacy? in how we relate to each other and how we set up rules and who we hold accountable, how we distribute resources, et cetera. And the third, and this is where I think, you know, the engaging point and hopefully forums like this and others, how do we convene hard conversations in a way that is constructive, right? Get people who disagree because, you know, you can not only get the people who agree with you to get the policy through, you got to bring with people who, who do not see things the same way. So we can have real engagement with the police. Um, you know, with communities who might actually have a lot of distrust and do the work that Burke and Valerie took to try to rebuild that trust, to cultivate empathy across the spectrum um, so that we actually can start to figure out how do we coexist peacefully as we the people, to quote Brian's inspirational language, quoting other inspirational language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think Burke, I think this question might be uh, perfect for you. Um, you talked about the skills of empathy to officers, and I was wondering if the panelists see value in taking this step further to teaching young children the value of empathy in schools. Yeah, so um, uh, the empathy to me is a little bit of, of, of a secret weapon. If you are a person that fundamentally is only good at like one thing, and that one thing is empathy, you'll get very, very far with human relationships. And so I think um, to Ian's last point, you know, it's just like human relationships, it's not that useful if only one person in a relationship shows empathy for the other person, right? Because then, you know, both people seek to be understood, right? Because my basic definition of empathy, when I, I, I teach a class about empathy to corporate security leaders in the private sector, and I try to keep it very simple. And what I'd say is, look, the basic idea here, here is you might not ever achieve this, but empathy is that attempt at putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And just by simply attempting to do that, you start to understand more and more and more about that person's experience. And then you can reflect back on your actions, maybe your biases, your thoughts, et cetera. If you start to learn that skill, it's like a, like, like, it's like a muscle. Empathy has to be practiced and built and so if you start that at an early age, it will become part of you as, as a human being, as an adult. And it won't be, you won't be looking at things as like me versus them or, um, you know, the police versus the public. You'll just view the world through the lens of empathy, of seeking to understand. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful human quality. And I think fast forwarding to the policing context, it is for me so fundamental when you're training a police officer and what we found that we found it's such a beautiful moment in the Baltimore Police Academy. We started teaching about this concept of empathetic policing. And the way I taught, teach police about empathetic policing is police are very oriented to physical tools. We imagine before you go out on duty, you have a belt with physical items. And one of those items is a gun, a taser, bullets, pepper spray, a baton, et cetera. The way I try to teach police is take empathy and put it on your belt. 
move everything else a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right and visualize empathy as a tool that you can use. And so next time when you're in a confrontation with someone or something's getting a little heated, et cetera, assess all your options. We teach use of force to teach it like a wheel. Oh, you could use pepper spray, you could use a taser, add empathy into that. And sometimes empathy is actually the right tool for the right moment. And so we make it a fundamental part of the way we train, the way we talk, the way we uh, talk to our children, teachers talk to students, it will be impactful. So yes, it's, it's, it, to me, that is a, a superpower. So I think we're coming close to the, the close. I wanted to maybe offer each of our panelists you know, a 30 second final thought as we wrap up this historic day. And then I'll just make a few uh, thank yous and then we can all go back to our families. So let me uh, invite Anne to start. So I, I really wanna thank Marissa and Courtney and, and Brian for their wisdom in putting together this panel. And this is by way of saying thank you to our guests who are here as well, because I'm thinking about the conditions for developing empathy. And it seems to me that one of the conditions requires there to be diversity in the room, a lot of different voices at the table. And so this links back to the last question as well. How do we as a university, how does the Batten School, how does the law school and other units at UVA, um, you know, what lessons do we take going forward and, and what do we plan to do with this moment? And I just think it's really essential that we have diverse student body, diverse faculty, diverse staff, folks like you who are willing to come and help us because it's just so hard to see outside of your own lenses unless you stop and oh, unless you have you get to spend time, rub elbows with people who've just had really different experiences. And I agree with the premise of the last question, which is that this is something that we need just empathy. We need to start training very young people. But I've seen law students have the moment of, you know, the light bulb goes on and they realize that the stories around which they've organized their lives are not the only stories. And the only way they can do that is by spending time with people in a community um, who have different, different ways of, of thinking and experiencing. So that's what I'm hoping the university can do, that we can continue to be a really rich community of learners. I've learned so much from my students over the years that it's, I feel like it's I who owe them um, for whatever I contribute. So thanks you guys for organizing this and thanks to the whole audience for being here with us at this historic moment. Thank, thank you, Anna. Burke, final word from you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm so happy to be here. I think my final point would be, um, it is so critical for us to, as we think about what changes could occur, particularly around policing. I, I, I really believe it's fundamental for us to start to peel the onion back and really take the time to understand policing in a very practical way, right? Because the better we understand how policing works, the better informed we will be about really constructive, impactful policy changes that could really change policing. And I just wanna finish with one brief moment about the beginning of my police career and how I went through this cycle of seeing this. And my, I saved this, my very first police worksheet 
which was a productivity worksheet. And we would get points for everything we did. And this, as a 21-year-old that was going out in my first real job, I would get points. I would get, let's say, two points for a moving violation, two points for a misdemeanor arrest. I would get points for stopping people and getting their ID and filling out a little form. That would be worth points. But I did not get points for resolving a dispute, for getting to know a business owner, right? So the fundamental question that every police chief should ask themselves today is, how am I motivating my employees when they start their shift? Because the police chief isn't out there at three in the morning. But at three in the morning, when your young police officers are looking at their quote unquote productivity sheets, how they're being greeted by their supervisors, they're asking, how can I do a quote unquote good job? The police chief's job is to guide them down that path. And we have to really reevaluate ourselves and say, how do we measure performance in policing? When we crack that nut, it starts to open up other opportunities for us. Very powerful. Thank you, Burke. Valerie, on a word. I would like to say that the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Uh, I think as a country, we've taken a huge step in the right direction today, but there are miles to go before we get where we need to be. Uh, and I would just add that as we, as we look at um, sort of policy and institutional places for change, we have to remember the professional associations that police officers belong to. Uh, as, as those associations begin to value empathy as, as part of training, uh, value all lives, Black Lives Matter, uh, then too that is re can be reinforced not only in the department, but in the associations that police office, officers belong to and where their value, their worth, their reputations uh, are developed. So uh, let us just uh, re remember that there are other places uh, than the campus that you have to spend some time and some energy. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you, Burke. I want to thank Jean, who had to leave us. I also thank Tia and uh, Wyatt, who'd hoped to be part of this and were part of our discussions about this. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Brian. And thank you to our great moderators, Courtney and Marissa. Thank all of you who've joined today. Stay tuned for future discussions related to justice, policing, policy, and leadership around public safety and civil rights. There will be more. Um, Gene Cash mentioned Ibram Kendi and his powerful articulation of anti-racism. Well, tomorrow, Professor Ibram X. Kendi will join us at UVA, virtually, for a special program at 5 p.m. open to the public on Zoom. I will moderate that discussion jointly with Dean Nicole Jenkins from the McIntyre School. Today was a historic day. It may be a day that is talked about in the days, months, and decades ahead. I hope each of us can take advantage of our voices that we've talked about, our roles, our relationships, our courage to advocate for positive change and bring healing to our communities. So put empathy on your belt and please stay connected to each other and please stay safe. Thank you very much for joining this evening.